Just so you know, there's some swearing coming up in this episode, in case that affects how you listen to it. Hi, I'm Tavi Gevinson, and this is The Rookie Podcast. And this week, we're bringing you an interview I did with the author, activist, and fellow podcast host Janet Mock at the legendary Strand Bookstore here in New York City. In theory, I believe I had something else to say. And I also was like, is there more that I can write beyond just the journey I had through my body? And then we asked author Roxane Gay your questions for our segment called Ask a Grown. Labels aren't meant to contain you. They're just meant to provide context for who you are. But first, to prepare you for all that, we're going to start off this week with a little life skill from Victoria Chu. Life skills is when one of our rookie contributors teaches you the basics of something they think of as essential to a good life. And since you're listening to us and we are making a podcast, and I get asked sometimes about being an interviewer and how to get better at that, I think we all agree with Victoria that active listening is a great life skill. Hi, I'm Victoria. I'm 19 from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and I'm going to teach you the life skill of active listening. Has this ever happened to you? You're having a conversation, the other person is talking, and suddenly you realize they're done with what they had to say and you have no clue what it was. Like maybe you heard them, but you didn't actually listen. It happens to all of us. Sometimes it takes more work to register 100% of what someone is saying especially when we might be focused on forming our response to what we're hearing or zoning out. But in one of my classes not too long ago, my professor mentioned something called active listening. The course material was about ways managers can help their employees feel heard and understood, but she said the basic principles could be applied to any daily interaction between friends, family, or classmates. It's helped me especially with conversations about more fragile topics or more emotionally fraught situations. If you've never heard of active listening, it's essentially a way of listening that helps you engage in what you're hearing while you're hearing it. Done well, it can encourage deeper conversations, resolve conflicts more quickly, and minimize misunderstandings. By listening actively, you can devote all your attention to what the other person is saying, making them feel more valued and enriching conversations while also checking in on the accuracy of your interpretation. You might be thinking, Won't thinking about listening only make it harder to just listen? Well, sometimes, and for some people more than others, it takes a bit of work to just listen. Sometimes you can't shut off your own brain, but you can focus that restless thinking on what the person in front of you is trying to communicate. Ideally, thinking about it this much eventually makes just listening effortless, like a reflex. So, here are some tips for becoming a good active listener. One, try to keep eye contact with and face the person you're listening to throughout the conversation. This kind of body language visually shows you're paying attention. Two, listen without imposing judgment. With that as a goal, you might be more likely to catch yourself forming an opinion on what someone is saying before you've even heard them properly. Every once in a while, try interjecting a quick, positive, "Mm mm-hmm, another encouraging sound, or a nod in a non-distracting way. It just helps the speaker know you're following along without interrupting them. Three, try to picture what you're hearing in your mind to engage your whole attention. This will help keep your attention on what they're saying rather than allowing your mind to wander while you sort of look into their eyes and mindlessly say stuff like, "Uh uh-huh, uh, yeah, sure. Four, acknowledge the feelings of the speaker. If, for example, your friend is recounting a tough day, you can say something like, that sounds really hard, and I'm glad you were able to talk to me about it. Whether she's looking for more cheering up or just to be allowed to vent, making a point to validate her feelings is a good place to start. Five, if you don't understand something about what you've heard, wait for a pause in the conversation to ask a clarifying question. Interrupting or asking unrelated questions can send the message that you don't think what the speaker is saying is that important. Six, once the person is finished talking, you can summarize their main points, kind of like this. So what I hear you saying, Jane, is that, insert points here. Then, if you aren't getting exactly what they meant to say, they know right away and have an opportunity to clarify. 
and you're not continuing on basically having two separate conversations. Seven, while you're doing all of this, be careful to pay close attention to how the speaker looks too. Their own body language will give you valuable info on what your speaker's really saying behind their words. Eight, this might sound counterintuitive to everything I just said, but don't worry too much about looking like you're listening. Just listen and that will take care of it. Worrying too much about how you're perceived, even if it's for the sake of making someone else feel heard, can take you out of what they're actually saying. So hopefully by implementing these tips, you can deepen your relationships with the people who matter most to you by giving them one of the most valuable resources you can, your time, by listening, really listening to them. It may sound a little odd and formal to think about doing things like summarizing the speaker's thoughts. Believe me, I thought that too. But trust me, it really does help make things so much clearer for everyone involved. On that note, thank you for listening, Rooks. My name is Victoria Chu, and this has been Life Skills. Thanks, Victoria. Janet Mock has succeeded in so many careers. She's an author, a culture writer and correspondent, podcast host, documentary producer, TV host, as well as an advocate for trans women. Her first book, Redefining Realness, was about growing up in Hawaii as a trans girl. Now she's just come out with a second memoir called Surpassing Certainty about her 20s. I loved this book so much and I think everyone could learn a lot from it. And I was super excited to interview Janet about it at the Strand Bookstore in New York City in front of a crowd of her lovely fans, who you'll hear too. Here is Janet Mock. Hi, every. Hi, everyone. Is it on? We're here. Yes, great. I just want to start by congratulating you. Um, this is such an incredible achievement, and it's something that I hope everyone reads. I'll be giving a lot of gifts this year oh, that are your Tavi. book. Thank you, Tavi. Um, and I want to know, first of all, what it was like to write a second book about your life after your audience grew and you got to know them and did you feel any type of expectation or, mm. or what was it like doing it with more faces to put to the readers? Yeah, I think that one of the greatest challenges with returning to the form and writing about myself again was the sense of um, that trust, right? Like trusting myself first. Mm. So sitting with myself again and really feeling as if I have something else to say. In theory, I believe I had something else to say, but on the same end, I also was like, is there more that I can write beyond just the journey I had through my body? Because oftentimes with trans genre memoirs, all of it is largely about our transition, our medical and social transitions, how we struggled with our gender in the world. Um, and so I felt like I did that. And I was like, I don't want to have to do that again and repeat that for my readers. So I trusted my readers to either have come to the text with their own knowledge and glossary and definitions and terminologies, or to, um, um, so I trusted them in that sense. And then going back to this text to just be able to write about my 20s was so freeing in a sense. It was so freeing to be able to just say what it's like to be a young woman in the world with these experiences and, and trying to like, being hungry for stuff, being hungry for love, hungry for desire, hungry for pleasure, hungry for career fulfillment and fulfillment in all of the spaces and not, you know, unproblematic roommates and all of the things. <laughs> The yeah. roommate stuff was um, particularly <laughs> hard to read. Um, yeah, I know that with your first book, Redefining Realness, you started by writing journal entries uh, just to get all of the memories down. Mm. Did this start the same way? Well, this started in a women's writer's residency called Hedgebrook. Oh. It's in Washington State. Um, they invited me during the madness of my first book tour. And I was just like, I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. And then uh, I was like, okay, I'll just take the space. I'll take a couple weeks in August and I'll go. And so 
when I went there, I like had to face myself again and I had to pause. And it was, cause you have a little cabin, like they give you a little cottage, they Whoa. feed you, they give you everything. And you're just with yourself. There's no internet service, there's no Wi-Fi, And so you're just kind of, I was just like, oh, I have to pause. And so I pause, I sat with myself and then I found this book. And I found myself returning to a lot of the questions that a lot of young people were asking me huh. about how was I able to do it, right? They were like, great, we got the trans memoir revolutionary, great, this first one person of color, first one a young person, but girl, how were you able to work at People Magazine? How were you able to move to New York City? How were you able to be like the first generation college student? All these things, and I was like, oh. And so in answering those questions, I had to return to being a young person again in the mm. world. It's not like I'm an elder, but I do think that there is this sense, in the trans community though, I am an elder. To be 34 years old, you know, the life expectancy of trans folk, particularly trans women of color, is 30. And so for me, thinking about that, I was like, what are the stories that I wish someone had told me? What is the roadmap that I would have wanted to be able to follow, if I wanted to follow one at all, to any sense of figuring out how to find all of these different, um, these different spaces for me to, to actually be able to show up as fully myself? There is one, well, okay, first of all, I have a lot of questions about this residency. Um, <laughs> yeah. Were you like seeing other, were you like then having di meals with the other women there? Yeah, or? so your only requirement is that you show up for six dinners, or six, so each week you had one requirement, which was like every day you show up for a meal. And so usually it was dinners, and then on Sundays it was a brunch. And so you sit with seven other writers from all over the world, because it's a global thing. Whoa. So, and you kind of leave with this pack of like really great, you know, women writers um, with different experiences. You have really heated conversations. I found myself having to come out sometimes at the, at the table when it, and a new person comes and people go and then someone else comes and takes over the cottage or the cabin that they were staying at. So you have to get kind of comfortable with like talking about your work, talking about what you're working on, talking about the world. When I went the first time, it was great that I had one person that who knew who, who knew who my work was. So she was a great like advocate to talk about it, and that's a bizarre thing with like disclosure and being trans or whatnot is that you often have to if you can blend in assist, you have to constantly, like coming out in disclosure is like a daily process for me. It's not mm -hmm. something that like, I did it once and now I'm done with it. It's like constantly having to shed these layers, constantly having to share parts of myself with people. And it's never just a light conversation where it's like, I'm trans and then we move on. <laughs> then I'm like talking about myself and my transition and all this stuff and it's like, it kind of never ends. And I'm like, well, there is my book in the, in the library, you know, so. <laughs> In the Hedgebrook Library, you can read it. It's called Redefining Realness. And then they'll read it, and then they come to you at the end, you know, like in a couple days later. And then it's like this weird, awkward moment where you're like, I can't believe this happened. Because they, they still then see you as a child you were, that you were writing oh. about those experiences. And so that's also a bizarre part with writing memoirs, that oh. people have this very immediate experience with having just experienced something that you experienced years ago, but are still placing you there. Because they're oh. still there, and they're just experiencing it. Oh, wow. Does that make sense? I, yeah, absolutely. Like, There's a lot of experience, experience, experiencing. <laughs> well, I just hadn't even thought about the, you know, you revisit it to write it, but then like by the time it's published, you're, it's, you know, a little out of sight, out of mind, but mm. then for the reader, it's a different thing and for everyone who, who encounters it. I, I feel like Surpassing Certainty does a really good job of there are like so many things happening at once because on one hand, you are very um, considerate and thoughtful around people who might not know, a reader who might not know the terminology. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't feel like you're just trying to educate those guys. Yeah. And it also, it feels like you're speaking your truth, but you're also very explicit in the intro about wanting to give other trans uh, women of color something to see themselves in. So there is that um, motivation behind all of it. How do you um, manage those different audiences when you're writing? Or what kind of decisions get made in writing or editing around like striking that very particular balance? What was really great this time around was that, um, I kind of alluded to it a little earlier, was that I, when we thought about audience, I wasn't thinking so much about the uninitiated. That was kind of the term my editor talked about in the first book, which was like, for the uninitiated, how would you phrase, you know, 
da 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 da, or like maybe here you can add, you know, terminology, or maybe here you can kind of widen the scope or offer statistics, or da da da. And so that's why I think, which is what largely made redefining realness so great as a text, was that it's so accessible because it gives you the personal narrative, but at the same time, it also then gives you the education piece, the trans 101 piece um, that enables you to digest and understand on certain levels the very complicated experience of being a trans young trans woman of color mm -hmm. so or one trans woman of color's experience um, and so with surpassing certainty when I thought about audience I really was just thinking about the things that I wanted someone uh, a woman like myself to tell me when I was younger mm -hmm. and which was largely the truth I wanted someone who's going to tell me the truth about disclosure because no one had told me about that before. The only model I knew about disclosure was that you try to achieve to be as passable as possible so that you can blend in with society and move away from your place of becoming and just live your life. And so I had done that. I followed that roadmap. That was the, that was the roadmap for liberation. I did it. I got there. And then I was able to make the decision because I felt safe enough, because I had economic power, because I had access, because I had certain privileges, to then be able to step forward at 27 and tell my story and be fully you know, content and unapologetic about my life experiences. And so with Surpassing Certainty, I wanted to concentrate on the years when I did not, when I was not unapologetic, when I was unsure, when I, was, when I didn't have anything to follow. And so I thought about what did she need to know then? That's kind of how I centered it. And in terms of the balancing for other readers, I was like, I already done a text that offers people language and all that stuff. They can go read that text and then come to this one or read this one first and then return to that one. Um, but I just tried, I think when I came, when it, I always try to talk about the personal and then contextualize. Contextualize in the sense of breaking away and saying, that this is how it could have been different for someone else who had different experiences, or I was lucky enough and privileged enough in this space. And so I'm always conscious about positionality of my own personal experience and where am I positioned in the world so that it made me able to navigate certain spaces beyond luck, beyond blessings, beyond you know, um, just kind of hitting the jackpot in certain um, aspects, but actually what were the parts of my experiences or my physical attributes and all that stuff that has enabled me to be able to be seen and heard. Well, to that end, you're very generous throughout the book and you know letting us in on mistakes you made or you know uh, things you didn't understand when you were younger about terminology or what other women were going through and you know encounters or conversations with friends or coworkers where someone ha like explained something to you that you didn't mm. know before and i think that's something that mm. people are more and more afraid of doing now because <laughs> I mean, the great thing about a book is like you have to read it to know what's in it. Yeah. But on the internet, it's really easy to take something out of context or just skim something and um, see mistakes as, you know, someone frozen in time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great to, you know, let people in on that because certainly everyone's at a different point in their own journey. And I want to know what um, got you to that place where you were comfortable being vulnerable in that way? Well, I think largely I kind of, as I set out, that my intentionality with this book was really to think about, um, think about centering myself when I was in process. And so I noticed when I moved to New York City, I thought that a lot of my consciousness would be around, you know, say gender issues or something like that. And I really kind of found my voice and, and really uh, was checked and challenged a lot in the racial space, right, with other black women, like the fact that I was able to tap in to a network of other uh, magazine intern black women who were looking for space in an in a industry that was not really reflecting them. Like the year that I interned at one of the, these fashion magazines, there was not a single woman of color on the cover. And so we wanted to engage in an industry that didn't ever really <laughs> reflect us. Right. And so that was something that we were kind of grappling with, but then still kind of hungry to be a part of. We wanted to be invited to the table. We wanted to be able to tell stories, our stories. Um, and so a lot of that, those conversations, a lot of my learning came through sitting down at lunch with these other black girl interns and learning about the ways in which I was read mm -hmm. by them, the way that in which I would probably be read by um, 
some magazine editors that were hiring us or prospective um, bosses. And you know, being a mixed black girl, being a black girl that is also native Hawaiian, I wasn't even thinking about the privileges of my skin color and hair texture and the way in which I speak and present. And so the fact that I was digestible for some white editors, safe for some white woman editors that were hiring us, that was like a hard pill to swallow mm -hmm. to hear from other black girls, but it was the truth. And so like, I wanted to share that nuance. Right now we're, ha we're having conversations about Tanache, aren't we? About her saying stuff like, you know, black women don't, or black people don't understand me because I'm mixed. You know, it's the same conversation we have over and over and over about this stuff. And it's like, we need to talk about the ways in which we're different, even within black communities, people of color communities, really being clear about that there are certain ways in which um, there's hierarchies because of the closeness to whiteness or whatnot. And so these are things that I learned largely through interning and being with these other other women. Um, I forgot what your original question was. Oh, <laughs> I went just... A, I went on a long tangent. Just keep talking, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, oh no, yeah. so I wasn't really afraid of talking because I had already experienced the moment of being you know, kind of ashamed when I said certain oh, things. You know, yeah. you'll read the book um, and you'll see the moments that I cringe at. But I was like, I think it's necessary to show that I didn't always, everyone's like, how do you say the perfect things all the time? And I'm like, I don't say the perfect things all the time, but it's like when the, when the camera's on, then I can be very careful. But there were many points in my life and still every single day when I'm, I say quite problematic things. Um, <laughs> and there were a time in my life when I often was uninformed, um, when I wasn't as conscious as I am now about certain things. And I'm still in process now, learning about all kinds of different intersections and communities. Um, oh, and that yeah. it's also harder to experience these um, things than it is to mess up and say the wrong thing, right? So we need to have these conversations. Right. We need to be able to talk um, frankly and clearly about the ways in which um, we have gaps in comprehension and consciousness when it comes to other people's life experiences. Well, when you were revisiting your years at these fashion magazines or at people.com mm -hmm. and talking about these issues of representation, did it feel like reflecting on it now, like things have changed much or mm -hmm. very different? Like, did it feel very different from how, what it's like to work in media now? It does. Well, when I was working, when I first kind of really got my big first job, which was at people magazine, I was a digital editor there and we were part of like, we were the hot young team that was coming in to do digital at Time Inc. And like there was, we had MySpace too, and like that's not around anymore. So things shift and change. And like Twitter, Twitter wasn't quite there then. And so people weren't having these conversations in the way that they're having them every single day. And so we were able to, at that time, be able to just send out stories and headlines and not really have to have a conversation with our readers beyond the comment section. And so like, there's no way now that you can publish something and not get commentary from your readers, especially if you're reaching millions of people, because now what's happening is that uh, largely this is a conversation. No longer does some magazine or journalist get to say something without someone then saying something back about the way in which they felt about that piece. Mm -hmm. And so what I love so much now about the internet is that there's that that level for these courageous conversations. And on the other level, there's a sense of more voices, more personal essays, more perspectives, more right. YouTube channels, more shows, more podcasts, <laughs> um, which is exciting because you have more stories and more voices. And though it, there is a fragmentation that's happening now in media, I think it's fine to be able to subscribe to the things that you want and be able to have that safe space for yourself um, however you see fit. Yeah, I mean, one of the best pieces of advice somewhat a like teenage rookie reader gave me was mm -hmm. like Instagram should make you happy I was like oh because <laughs> um, normally scrolling through it is like a kind of a, a nightmare why is it um, an Instagram or Twitter Twitter's a nightmare sometimes for me but Twitter Instagram I've given up on um, <laughs> but what how is Instagram a nightmare what what is it I want to hear that it's just I'm not trying to interview you but. no <laughs> um, tables have turned it's just the like <laughs> compare and despair thing mm. um oh yeah there's a lot of like FOMO right yeah, yeah. FOMO um I mean it's how is her highlighter so popping how yeah, can I, I why know. am I not at this party I wasn't invited to this party yeah. yeah and you have a lot of very famous friends too I do it's so hard <laughs> I mean, no. So your, your fear think, of missing out is like a whole other Well, I think, layer. Not, I think like the key there is like maybe famous like 
Instagram friends. <laughs> and that's like the gap yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where I'm like, huh, this is not li- my life. Mm, um, mm. But yeah, she was like, just follow a bunch of artists. And then when you look at it, it'll be a bunch of beautiful artwork mm. or like follow people who share positive messages instead mm. of um, like a, a relative who makes you feel weird. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love all we of all my relatives. We know that. <laughs> um, in your book, you a big part of it is pop culture, mm-hmm. and you describe it as an obsession, as sometimes for you a distraction. Um, but th- all throughout, there are all of these references to different TV shows and movies and musical artists and uh, and how they informed the way you and your family and your roommates and your boyfriend and all of these people uh, came to view each other and Mm. have perceptions about New York City, about people of different races, about queer people and trans folks. And I am curious, and it's something that in reading it and it all being kind of in retrospect is so illuminating about where everyone in your story is coming from. Mm. When did you realize it was more than just an obsession and it was this way of understanding how people treat each other and why? Oh, that's such a great question. I, I think one of the things that really enabled me to engage in this space so much more as a journalist was knowing that I couldn't have spent my entire life engaging with certain cultural products mm-hmm. without, in, in, not, in not having value. Do you know what I mean? Like right. I could not have spent that much time watching TV watching VHS, um, um, you know, um, watching TRL, listening to Destiny Child, listening to Janet Jackson, and not mean something. It must have meant something for mm-hmm. me to engage in that space, to spend so much of my young life in that space. And I think about the ways in which it was an escape for me from um, difficult realities. Um, it was a, um, a refuge um, from so much stuff that was going on in my young life when I was feeling, and I love that you always say this, when you're a teenager, you feel feeling so intensely. (laughs) Um, And so thinking about that, for me, when I went to journalism school, I was just like, I don't know if I want to just be another like New York Times war reporter. I think I'm good. You know, I think there's enough of those. Um, And so like, how can I, you know, write about Angelina Jolie and her kids? Um, And so there was a part of that for me where I think I needed just that time to engage in that space. And I think it wasn't until probably after I told my story and took a break from pop culture reporting and just started doing advocacy work and doing speeches and writing essays about you know my own personal experiences and the experiences of my communities that I was able to then have reflection and be like, oh, these don't have to be two different worlds. I, because they exist in me and they're my interests, I can bring them together. And I think that being a trans woman of color, um, being a journalist that I could, and a pop culture fan that I could, and someone who has this consciousness around social justice issues, that I can bring all of that in there. And I don't have to complete, I can be a critical fan um, and I can write about what the certain pop cultural products um, and people say about us and what they say about where we need to go and what they say about our gaps in comprehension right now. And so I just started using that as a jumping off point because one of the best things you can do at a dinner party or something is talk about the Real Housewives. Everyone has some kind of interaction with that and it's a shared, it's a shared like common language that you can then go jump off and talk about all kinds of different other issues. Right, it's like come for the uh, reality TV and stay for the yeah. lessons about intersectionality. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, if it, I'm like with maybe. Yeah, maybe with Atlanta, you could. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. M- right. Right. Um. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> uh, in this book, you a lot of it is about without giving uh anything away. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Um. She was a stripper. Oh, well, that, there's that, which was like, it's in the first few chapters, so it's not really yeah, a spoiler. Yeah, exactly. Um, but a lot of it is about a relationship that you, and you talk about having made the choice to omit it from mm. your first book. Mm. Um, what was the motivation behind including it in this one? I think there is no way to write about the time period that I was writing about in Surpassing Certainty without including Troy, 
who's a character in the book, who was my first love. Um, when I wrote Redefining Realness, I largely centered it or kind of gave, kind of, what, do you, what is the term I'm looking for? Um, book ended it, literally, with <laughs> my love story with Aaron, disclosing uh-huh. to, meeting him, our love story, disclosing to him, and then seeing what his reaction is at the, in the last chapter. Um, but he wasn't the first man I ever told that I was trans to, and mm-hmm. he wasn't the first man that I told that I was trans to who accepted me and still loved me. Um, it was stronger to sell the first book in that kind of a way, or to frame it in that way, uh-huh. but in um, Surpassing Certainty, there. I really unpack and talk about the challenging and complicated and you know intensely felt feelings of first love mm. um, and also navigating the tricky space and oftentimes treacherous and dangerous and misconceptions filled space of disclosure for trans women in romantic partnership with cisgender cisgender straight guys. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the things that I wanted to do with telling that story was to use it as as a backdrop of my own progression. You learn so much when you spend about five years with one person in some sense, Um, though there was a lot of, you know, I was gonna say fuck boys. Well, I guess you can say fuck boys <laughs> in between. Um, so yeah, um, I was like trying to find like uh, the male equivalent of side chick, but I guess it would be fuck boy, wouldn't it? Uh, as a non-expert, um, <laughs> yes, that sounds that sounds right. <laughs> there are definitely fuck boys in this book. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Um, sex positivity. Sex positivity. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, so it was like this sense of wanting to ensure that I that that I was being honest about that relationship and how much it how much um, it really contributed to my sense of self. I spent so much time with this person, so it must have meant something. And so, because of the time period that we were together, and it coincided with the book, there was no way that I couldn't write that relationship is such a major theme and backdrop mm-hmm. in surpassing certainty. There's something you say in the intro that I was just reminded of when you're talking about um, the complications around disclosure Mm -hmm. and who's, you know, in a space where they can do that safely. Mm. And you say it's not about, I'm paraphrasing it, read the book, which you're going to, but... um, So book lovers here. Yeah. yeah. But you say something like um, trans women aren't trying to pass for cis women we mm-hmm. are women mm-hmm. and it's was just so it's at the very beginning of the book but it's so succinctly put and even though you go into all of the you know different relationships where you're navigating that that kind of sets the tone in a really beautiful mm-hmm. way um and i don't really have a question about that i just thought yeah. that that was it's i am just very no, that's it. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I'm, there are a lot of different elements and a lot of different narratives and you have the relationship with Troy while you have all these other encounters mm. with other people. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm curious actually with the, if having done the first book, there was anything you learned from tapping back into all of that emotionally that you could kind of lean on this time around? Hmm. Tapping back emotionally. Um, I'm a little tired, sorry. My brain is like Me not too. working as fast as it should be. I don't know if that be. was obvious or um, but I think that you know it's always hard in the sense of writing about your own life experiences. Like it's safe when you're sitting there alone in a room with your legal pad or your computer and telling yourself the truth or telling yourself your own stories. It's difficult then when those stories, specifically harder trigger points um, and experiences are then shared out. Um, what's so great is I was talking about a little bit earlier about trusting your reader. I trust my readers like Unabashedly, I don't think that anyone would come to this book um, trying to get me or trying to trigger me or trying to, they're coming to this book because they want to read the book. You don't spend that much time with a book and or with a person in a book and, and think of and are tr- having bad intentions or something. And so for me, that trust enables me to lean emotionally on that, that trust, um, mm-hmm. that conversation, the giving and bearing witness, the telling and sharing. Um, and so that's what I love so much about the genre memoir. You did pick up a little bit about disclosure and opening the book there. Um, The introduction of the book 
is about a moment where I'm sitting in a nightclub, and this has happened to me dozens of times, and I'm 19 years old, about to turn 20, and um, someone I know from kind of vaguely recognizable from high school who knew me when I was transitioning because I transitioned through high school and she was standing at the bar and I, this guy came up and I was dancing with him and all this stuff. When I went to the restroom, she then outed me to him and you see what kind of happens in that moment. And I think about sometimes the most treacherous spaces are oftentimes the spaces in which we are trying to just be ourselves and show up as we are, and then other people have other things to say about how we show up in the world, and how that can also be dangerous, and how we also strip people of agency, and we take their stories, and we um, give our own commentary and our own, our own language onto that, and we label them, and we don't know what could have happened if it turned, took another turn when he heard this information, if he believed her, if he, you know, all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like that's almost the everyday experience for a lot of trans folk who are who are navigating um, these spaces. And so for me, I had made it to that other side. So I was like, my sense of telling it, there was no high risk. I'm not in that right. space anymore in that same way. So I thought I should probably tell it so that hopefully no one else does what she did again and what a lot of the people in the book do and a lot of things that I did too, to avoid right. those pitfalls. This is The Rookie Podcast, and there's more coming up after this quick break. So this is a, a bit of a, a callback because mm -hmm. I went back to um, when Julianne Shepard interviewed you for Rookie in 2014. Mm -hmm. And you one had, of my favorite conversations. Oh, so good. Mine too, as someone who was not in it. Um, <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be like sad. <laughs> um, as a reader, I was a fan. <laughs> um, but in it, you have a post-it on your desk that mm. said, "Ownership and perception." Mm. Uh, what does that post? Oh, you're gonna it check me on now? It still says it. Oh, I mean, do you have a different? Po Obviously, oh, that post-it still um, says the have, same thing. I think oh. I have one that just says, um, "Be stingy." Oh, because a lot of people people ask a lot of you know people ask a lot of you. Um, there's a lot of oh, how am I gonna word this? Um, <laughs> trying not to be problematic. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of demands to be made on your time. Mm -hmm. And for me, my greatest fantasy would be able to have two full free days a week to not do anything, to not show up, to not have to produce, to be able to just sit and maybe read, to sit and maybe write, but without the expectation of having it to be something great. Um, and you know, this book, Surpassing Certainty, took so much work because I had so many different demands and obligations. Um, whereas in my first book, it was a lot easier because I got a book deal, I quit my job, and I just started writing. Um, whereas this one was like, I did that same thing, but you know, my job was just my life, and my job right. was my activism, my job was the work I had to do, and so I had to figure out how to say no, how to be like, I should be able to not do anything, to just sit and write. Um, and so for me, the be stingy is a reminder to me that it's okay to take care of myself first, and I think that that's kind of a theme of this book. It's like, take the time you need to center yourself, to take care of yourself before you think about doing anything else for anyone else. Yeah. Oh, no, that's so important. I mean, I was it was it hard to get back to that feeling mm. of, you know, as though you have this big expanse of time to just write and uh, everything not have to be perfect right away while also, you know, interviewing people yourself, mm. um, doing all of these other uh, producing jobs and everything you're describing. Well, you know, the trans list took a big chunk of my time. It's an HBO yeah. documentary that I, um, that I produced and did all of the interviews for. And it took a lot of time away from my being able to sit and write, but the project was so important and it was right. not about me. Mm -hmm. So it also then made me want to do it more. Whereas a memoir is like, I'm just sitting and writing about me, which is like fun. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, I do enjoy being um, not so much the subject, but being the person 
asking the question. That's my yeah. more natural state, the person framing the conversation. Um, but I do think that it's important that because I have access to these spaces to be able to tell the stories that I feel that aren't there and the stories that I wish I would have had at a, at a library or a bookstore to be able to, to, to read and stuff. And so I still just, I have such a precious love for books. That's why I love the strand. That's why mm -hmm. it's, you know, the launch event for, for my book. It's such a special place. I've sat I've sat in its stacks and read so many books and, you know, I probably pocketed a couple. Um, <laughs> stunt queen realness. Um, yeah, so yeah. Well, on that note, in the book you say that you aspire daily to be like Toni Morrison Sula, a mm. woman who shuns the demands placed on her by her watchful community, a woman who lacks ego, a woman okay in her otherness. What other characters or literature inspired mm. you? Janie Crawford from their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston is still, I think, my favorite protagonist. Um, I would wish I had a body that when you wore overalls that it looks like you had grapefruits in your back pockets <laughs> that is like the best you know black girl you know body goals <laughs> description ever um but not just for her physicality but also just the journey that she was on as a young woman who went out and lived the world lived in the world and then came back to be able to tell her story to her best friend you know a lot of people i i think um well there's so many different ways to read but i was about to say misread the book and see it as just a woman who's like on a chase for men or something mm -hmm. or finding herself in men but i think that she was was these relationships were a part of her life and she was experiencing the world and then she came back to tell her best friend a woman and give testimony barefoot on her back porch telling her story and that has always in inspired me so she's definitely and then like real life protagonist heroine who's no longer with us Maya Angelou she, the way in which she was able to editorialize her life experiences and her stories and give us lessons um, in really powerful stories and language has always been a, um, a way in which I've been able to do this work and to write myself onto these books and these shelves. Thank you so much to Janet and the Strand Bookstore for hosting that event. Please go find her book, Surpassing Certainty. It's out everywhere. You'll see it everywhere, and everyone will be talking about it. You should also go check out Janet's podcast, Never Before. Specifically, her interview with Miss Tina Lawson was uh, legendary. Up next on The Rookie Podcast, best-selling author Roxane Gay will answer your questions about the feminist label and how to live in this crazy world without getting too stressed out. On the Rookie Podcast and at RookieMag.com, we like to send grown-ups we admire the questions that you've sent us. This week, we are so lucky to have Roxanne Gay give us some advice. She is the author of many fiction and nonfiction books, including Bad Feminist and Difficult Women, and a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. She's also written for basically every other publication. She takes down trolls on Twitter really well. It's like the one thing I look at on Twitter anymore. And she has a new memoir out called Hunger, a memoir of my body. Rookie contributor and author Jenny Zhang interviewed Roxanne for an upcoming episode of the Rookie Podcast, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, here's Jenny asking Roxanne some of your questions for Ask a Grown. All right. Um, so we have this feature called Ask a Grown, um, mm -hmm. where teens have questions for grownups, which you are. Okay. Uh, we'll <laughs> go with that. <laughs> okay. The first question is, this is from Madison. Lately, I've been feeling kind of stressed out and down due to the political climate, how everything's going in the media and what I've been hearing about all the time. I was talking to my friend and I was telling him it's easy to be happy when you can pretend that everything's fine. But what if it's gotten to the point where you can't pretend that everything's fine anymore? What if you just want to be happy or maybe just okay, but there's nothing you feel you can do to make everything that is not okay, okay? Well, Madison, I think you're taking a lot onto your shoulders there. <laughs> uh, you can't make everything okay. You just can't. You have to recognize yeah. your humanity. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all very small beings in a very big world. 
And so all you can do is the best that you can do and to stay politically aware. Uh, but you don't have to stay politically aware such that you saturate yourself with misery and can't mm. function. Nothing good is going to come of that. And quite frankly, the world is not turning or stop not turning based on like your level of wokeness. Yeah. And so I really, I, I especially, we, we're seeing so many people just like burning out because every single day there's some new bizarre news story about this administration. And so you have to stay on top of things, but you don't have to stay on top of things to the detriment of your mental health and your well-being. Yeah. And so it's just important to, I find what I do is just these days I surrender. Like, yep, this is happening. <laughs> and that doesn't make me complacent or lazy. Yeah. I just recognize that I'm a writer, so I'm going to try and use my voice as best I can to bring attention to the current political climate and all of its problems and I'm going to call my elected officials as necessary and protest as necessary. But most importantly, I'm going to vote Yeah. Um, when the time comes. And so I'm just doing what I can do yeah. and taking the stands where I can take them. And I think that's all we can do. And at the same time, I'm just reminding myself that it's okay to also enjoy life. And I struggled with that for the first couple months after the election. I was in a profound depression. Yeah. I really was. And I'm okay with admitting that. I just was not at all prepared for Trump to win. Yeah. I, I really didn't allow for that possibility because it was so outlandish. Right. I just thought there's no way it's going to happen. Right. Um, but, you know, life does go on. And I'm not helping the people who are most harmed by this administration by wallowing. Yeah. You know, nothing good is coming of that. You're not helping anyone. You're actually just indulging yourself. Right. And so, you know, live your life. Right. All right. And the last question is from Ro Roma Roman, I think. The name is French. Uh, they said, don't oh, worry. Yeah. Roman. Mm -hmm. Don't worry if you can't pronounce it. Um, all right. <laughs> Roman said, <laughs> hi, Ricky. I've been struggling to figure out how I feel about labels recently, and I'm feeling kind of frustrated because there's some stuff I haven't been able to figure out. And for the first time in forever, the internet didn't really help. I can't believe the internet has been helping this whole time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Where is that helpful part of the internet? Yeah. How do I find it? <laughs> I love it. They said for the first time, the internet didn't really help. Oh, okay. bless the children. I know. <laughs> All right. I've identified as a feminist for as long as I can remember. It's something that has really helped me feel empowered and confident and has helped me define who I am. However, I feel almost inspired when I meet someone who chooses to be who they are and like who they like without specifically defining any of it. I feel really conflicted because I don't want to stop calling myself a feminist. I am a feminist. But I also understand where people are coming from when they say that maybe labels divide us more than anything. Do they? Are there good and bad labels? How can I have a sensible conversation about this topic if my opinion is completely incoherent? Thank you, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most people's opinions are completely incoherent on any number <laughs> of topics. And so I don't think you have to worry about that. You know... When I was younger, I was just like, I don't need labels. Labels can't contain me. Don't defy me. Don't pin me down. But I find that there's a lot of use in labels. Mm. It's how you think of the label. Like, mm. the label is not the whole of who you are. And right. sometimes you have multiple labels. And sometimes the label is incomplete. Um, so I'm a feminist myself. And I'm proud to be a feminist, but I, I know that my feminism is imperfect, and that's why I actually wrote a book about it called Bad Feminist. And, you know, that descriptor, that label was partly tongue-in-cheek and provocative, but it also just allowed me more space. And so sometimes what you have to do is just create the labels that you want that will mm -hmm. define yourself while understanding that it's not going to get 100% of you. It's okay. Yeah. Labels are not meant to keep us in glass cases and yeah. freeze us in time. <laughs> yeah. They're just meant to give ourselves sometimes information about who we are. Sometimes they're meant to give other people information. But labels do not divide us. People divide us. People allow themselves to be divided. And if a label is something that allows you to feel like I can't relate to that person because they're different than I am, mm. then that says more about them than you. I, I really, anytime someone dismisses an argument by saying labels divide us, I just think you're not thinking hard enough. Right. Or you're not, you know, you're not, what are you talking about? Right. I am who I am, and I'd like to give you some context for who I am and perhaps the history 
of my, you know, like my experiences Mm -hmm. that when I approach you, I'm a black woman. I'm a Haitian American woman. Mm. I'm a queer woman. And these things have informed how I see the world and what I've been through. And you need to know that it's going to be different from your experiences as an Asian woman. as someone in her 20s, as a writer, we're both writers, so we can actually talk about, like, what do we have in common? Yeah. And where do we, you know, differ? Um, it just, context really matters, and I think labels help us and unite us in that way. Because yeah. it provides context, and when we understand context, I think it allows us to be more generous to one another and contribute to that thing we were just talking about <laughs> called empathy. <laughs> See what I did there? I brought it full circle. I saw that circle, and it's <laughs> glorious and really yes. nice. <laughs> that, was a, that was like my victory lap. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's wonderful that you're calling yourself a feminist. And, um, yeah, you labels aren't meant to contain you. They're just meant to provide context for who you are. I think context is good, and it's a start. Yes, it is. Um, Roxanne, well, I want to label you as an amazing human being. I will take that label. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Roxanne, and thanks to Jenny Zhang for asking those questions. Go find Roxanne's new book, Hunger, and be sure to check out next week's episode for her conversation with Jenny in full. You won't want to miss it. We want to hear from you, too. June is Pride Month, where we celebrate all things LGBTQ. It's coming to a close soon, and we want to know what you're doing to celebrate, or the story of how you might have come out to your loved ones and how they reacted. Please send us your voice recordings, keep them to a minute max if you can, to podcast at rookiemag.com along with your first name or nickname, age, and location. And continue to hit us up on social media or in the iTunes reviews with your feedback, selfies, emojis, all of it. Thanks for listening to this week's Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Tavi Gevinson, and we'll see you next week. This episode of Rookie was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. Thanks to Lauren Redding for making the podcast happen. Thanks also to Shamir for our theme song, Hattie Stewart for the Rookie logo design, Cynthia Merhedge for Rookie's logo, Beth Heckel for the jewels, and Maria Inez Gold for her illustrations. <laughs>